Section 4 Building a State in Apache Land by Charles Poston This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Arizona, a Territory at Last when the Civil War was nearly over, General Heitzelman accompanied me on a call at the Executive Mansion to solicit the organization of a territorial government for Arizona. President Lincoln listened to my tale of woe like a martyr, and finally said, Well, you must see Ben Wade about that. I subsequently called upon Senator Wade of Ohio, the chairman of the Committee on Territories, and repeated my story of Arizona. The bluff old senator said, Oh, yes, I have heard of that country. It is just like hell. All that lacks is water and good society. He finally consented to attend a meeting at the President's to discuss the subject. Ashley of Ohio was chairman of the Committee on Territories in the House and readily agreed to favor the organization of a territorial government. In a few days, President Lincoln appointed an evening to hear the delegation in favor of Arizona from 8 to 12. The chairman of the committees on territories attended, and General Heitzelman and some other friends were present. I presented the maps, historical data, some specimens of minerals and Indian relics, and after a long conference and some interesting stories by the president, the organization of a territorial government for Arizona was agreed upon. The country was at that time under martial law, General Carleton. If any system of government is repellent to Americans, it is martial law. Whatever may be the expense of juries, lawyers, witnesses, and courts, they form the only means civilized society has yet devised for the settlement of disputes. It is true that a territorial form of government was never contemplated by the framers of the Constitution, as no provision was made for such a form of government, but this omission is covered by the General Welfare Clause, which gives Congress the power to provide for the general welfare. The formula adopted in an act of Congress organizing a territory is an act to provide a provisional government, etc., etc., etc. In the course of time, no doubt, all the territories will be admitted as states as the territorial form of government is not provided for as a permanency by the Constitution and is moreover anomalous in the American system. People residing in the territories are, to a considerable extent, disenfranchised politically and are not, in fact, full-fledged American citizens. The idea of taxation without representation is irritating to their sense of justice, and for many other cogent reasons, Congress will be forced by public opinion to admit the territories to all the rights of sovereign states. The delegate from New Mexico and myself sat at a table and drew up a bill dividing New Mexico into nearly equal parts by the 111th degree of longitude west and providing for the organization of the Territory of Arizona from the western half. The bill soon became an act of Congress and was approved by President Lincoln on the 23rd of February, 1863. The offices were divided out among the supporters of the measure at an oyster supper and as I was apparently to get nothing but the shells, I fortified myself with a drink, and exclaimed, Well, gentlemen, what is to become of me? They seemed not to have thought about that, and the governor-elect said, Oh, we will give you charge of the Indians. You are acquainted with them. So I was appointed superintendent of Indian Fairs. The salary of the office was $2,000 a year, payable in greenbacks worth about 33 cents on the dollar in the currency of Arizona. 
Arrangements were made for the transportation of my new colleagues across the plains at government expense, but I took Ben Holliday's coach at Kansas City and crossed the continent to Sacramento and thence by a river steamer to San Francisco. The Indian goods had been shipped to Yuma. In San Francisco I met my old friend J. Ross Brown, who had just returned from Europe and invited him to accompany me through Arizona at my expense. He afterwards wrote an account of the journey, Wanderings in Apache Country, published by Harper's. Archbishop Alamani, whom I had known as parish priest in Kentucky, called upon me in San Francisco and asked if I would take a couple of priests down to Arizona to restore the service among the Indians at the old mission of San Xavier del Bac on Santa Cruz, to which I assented with great pleasure. After a voyage by sea from San Francisco to Los Angeles, I presented my orders from the Secretary of War to the commanding officer at Drum Barracks for an escort of cavalry and transportation to Arizona, and prepared for the journey across the Colorado Desert. We arrived at Yuma just before Christmas, and during Christmas week regaled the Yumas, Kokopas, and neighboring tribes of Indians with their first presents from Uncle Sam. After distributing the Indian goods at Yuma, we proceeded upon the Gila River some two hundred miles to the Pima village, where my old friends, the Pima Indians, gave a warm welcome, not entirely on account of the Indian goods. At Pima villages one Sunday, I requested the priest to celebrate the Mass and tell the Indians something about God, remembering my own failure in teaching theology. The troops were drawn up, the Indians assembled, and Father Bosco, through my interpreter, preached the first sermon the Pima Indians ever heard. At dinner, the good father took me by the ear and said, What for you make me preach to these savages? They squat on the ground and laugh at me like monkeys. The next place for the distribution of Indian goods was at the mission of San Xavier del Bac, three leagues south of Tucson, among the Papagos, a Christianized branch of the great Pima tribe. The Papago chiefs were my old friends and acquaintances and received the priests with fireworks and illuminations. They knew of our coming and had swept the church and grounds clean and ornamented the altar with mistletoe. The Indians had been expecting the priests for many years. For the Jesuits told them long ago, as sure as the water continues to flow, the sun to shine and the grass to grow, they would come again to the Pepago. I installed the priests in the old mission buildings and turned over the goods intended for the Papagos for distribution at their convenience. I met an old friend at the mission called Buckskin Alec, who had lived there all through the war without reading newspaper or changing his clothes. As nails were scarce, Buckskin Alec had constructed a mill held together by rawhides and was grinding wheat for the Papagos. In the meantime, he had taken up with the Papago girl to the scandal of the tribe. The priest told me he must marry the girl or leave. He appealed to me for protection, but I told him I had resigned my sacerdotal functions to the priest. He married the girl and kept a mill. In 1863, a considerable number of prospectors had come into Arizona, mostly from the California side, on account of discoveries of gold on High Sayamp. Old Pauline Weaver was a discoverer, as he had been a trapper and pioneer since 1836. His name is carved on the walls of the Casa Grande with that date. Gold washers there were doing very well, and ranches began to be established on the river but the Apaches were not inclined to leave the settlers in peace when they had some fine horses and mules and some fat cattle. So the Tonto Apaches made a raid on the Hacienda and carried off nearly all the stock. King Woolsey had come into the country then and was a prominent man among the settlers and undoubtedly a very brave one, so he raised a company to go after the Tontos. As everyone knows, Tonto means fool. 
but they were not more than twenty-five men, including some friendly Maricopas. They were well armed, but their commissariat consisted principally of panoli and jerky. They followed the Indians across the Verity to a place about halfway between Globe and the Silver King, where they came into a parley. The tanks there are surrounded by rough ledges of basalt rock, and the country in the vicinity is covered by scoriae, as though a volcano had vomited the refuse of the subterranean world to disfigure nature. Indians came in slowly for a talk, but were insolent and defiant. Delshade, the Tonto chief, demanded a blanket and some coffee and whiskey. Americans had neither coffee nor whiskey for their own use, and he was quite put out about it, but partook of panoli and jerked beef. Parley was very unsatisfactory, as the Indians were surly and made demands which it was impossible to grant. There were about twenty-five Indians at the council, and fifty or more on the surrounding ledges. As the Indians became more hostile, the situation became more serious, and it was evident to the Americans that they were surrounded and in an imminent danger of massacre. Woolsey was not only a brave, but a very intelligent man, and he saw at once that either the Americans or the Indians were to be slaughtered, so he said, Boys, we've got to die or get out of this. Each of you pick out your Indian, and I will shoot the chief for a signal. Fusillade commenced, and all the Indians that could run stampeded. The only American killed was Lennon, a half-brother of Amby White, my Indian agent at the Pima villages. Lennon had picked out his Indian and sent a bullet to his heart, but the Indian in the agonies of death made a lunge at Lennon with his spear and transfixed him. They both fell at the bloody tanks in the embrace of death. Americans rescued Lennon's body and, having strapped it over a pack mule, carried it away to the next camp where it was buried with Christian services at the foot of an aspen tree. Americans brought away twenty-four scalps. After the bloody tanks affair, some of the men engaged in it came to the Pima villages where I was in camp. J. Ross Brown, who was with me, took down the account in shorthand, and I made a list of the Americans engaged in the expedition. I remember when Brown got through with his stenography, he asked one of the men if he had any Indian relics. The man replied, Yes, I've got some jerky ears, and he presented Brown about a dozen jerked ears strung on a buckskin. I concluded to make a scout up country and see what was going on among the Indians, and as there were no troops at my command, I organized a company of Pimas and Maricopas as scouts. They had recently received arms and ammunition from the government, and I had uniforms and swords enough for the officers. They soon learned to drill and already knew how to shoot. Commissariat was not quite up to military regulations, but we set out all the same, following along the Hassayamp to Antelope Peak, when we turned east by Walnut Creek to the Verde over an infernal trail. The way down the Verde was not much better, as the Black Canyon has never been considered strewn with roses, but we hunted and fished to the junction of the Verde and Salt River without seeing any Apaches. The only sign we saw was cut on a tree, 24 Americans and 24 arrows pointed at them, which the Pimas interpreted to me as the number of Americans the Apaches threatened to kill in retaliation. There was not a soul on the Verde, not a white man nor a house on the Salt River, from the junction of the Verde to its confluence with the Gila. We camped at the Holden Rock and next morning crossed Salt River at the peak about Tempe and crossed over to the Pima villages glad enough to get into that haven of rest. It was 100 miles of Tucson and 280 miles of Yuma, and not a soul nor any provisions between the two places.
There was no great inducement to stay in the territory at that time except for people who had an insane ambition for orchestral fame on the Golden Harps in New Jerusalem. Many of the people had read about the government in the United States in school books, and perhaps had enjoyed the felicity of hearing a Fourth of July oration in youth, but these were myths of antiquity in Arizona. There was no government of any consequence, and even what there was was conducted on the democratic principle, not for protection but for revenue only. I anticipated the Fourteenth Amendment and distributed the Indian goods without regard to race, color, or former condition of servitude. Anybody that came along and needed blankets or tobacco was freely supplied. I wound up the Indian service with loss of about $5,000 out of my own pocket. At camp on the Hassayette, Henry Wickenberg came in with some specimens of gold quartz he had found out to the west at a place subsequently called Vulture, and wanted me to buy the find. I said, Henry, I don't want to buy your mine, but I'll give you $25 worth of grub and a meerschaum pipe if you will go away and leave me alone. I was also importuned to purchase Miguel Peralta's title from the King of Spain for the Salt River Valley, but my experience with Spanish grants in Texas, California, and Arizona did not incline me to invest even if the grant had been made by the Pope of Rome and guaranteed by the Continental Congress. The only members of the Woolsey expedition remaining in Arizona that I know of are Peoples of Phoenix, Chase of Antelope, and Blair at Florence. The government of the United States can never recompense the people of Arizona for the atrocities committed by the Apaches. It will never do to make the plea that a government of vainglorious and boastful could not have conquered this tribe of savages if the will to do so had existed. Now, after forty years of devastation, the government pays the Apaches $150,000 a year in goods to maintain a quasi-peace. Settlers are not at any time secure against an Apache outbreak, and there are at the present time some Apaches on the warpath, which the government acknowledges its impotency to capture. A Century of Dishonor was a well-written book, and contains many unpleasant truths. In the meantime, while I was delivering the Indian goods, my colleagues in the territorial government had crossed the plains and established the capital at a remote place in the northern mountains, which they called Prescott, in honor of the Mexican historian. Just as was supposed, they quarreled all the way across the plains about who should be the first delegate to Congress from a territory they had never seen. Upon my arrival at Prescott, they were perfectly disgusted to learn that I had already been declared a candidate and was likely to get the votes of the people. The political machine had not then been organized, and the people had some say in the elections. The election was held in due time, and I was elected the first delegate to Congress from Arizona. Carpetbaggers worked the territory for all it was worth, as is evidenced by the public debt, which is three times as great as any state or territory in the Union per capita. The capital was moved from town to town as a political factor in the election of delegates, but now rests at Phoenix, in the Salt River Valley, where it will permanently remain, as no other place in the territory can ever rival Phoenix in the abundance of all that contributes to the comfort and happiness of life. The soil is fertile, the climate healthful and with water storage in reservoirs, the city will grow equal to any on the Nile. At this time there was not inhabited on the Salt River where Phoenix now stands, and the Salt River Valley was a desolate and abandoned waste. It had been occupied some thousands of years ago by a race who cultivated the land by irrigation, and built houses in cities which have gone to ruin. Most diligent search has developed but few evidences of the extent of their civilization. They had not advanced very far, as they left no relics of either iron, copper, or steel. 
The land and cultivation would have supported a population of from fifty to a hundred thousand souls. It is an excusable ambition for a man, especially in the western country, to desire the honor of representing his state or territory in Congress. It was necessary to cross the deserts to San Francisco, and thence via Panama, New York, and Washington. I had scarcely taken my seat when a distinguished-looking gentleman, Roscoe Conklin, came up and introduced himself, saying in a very pompous way, I observe you have drawn a front seat, and as I presume you do not wish to debate, I shall feel very much obliged if you will have the courtesy to exchange seats with me. I replied with the greatest pleasure, sir, and took a back seat, more becoming to my station. In a few days the chairman of the committee on mileage came around to my seat and said, Poston, how is this? Your mileage is $7,200, and mine is only $300. I replied, Frank, what is the price of whiskey in your district? He said about $2 and a half per gallon. Well, I said it is $15 a gallon in Arizona. That equalizes the mileage. He certified the account and never said another word. Salary was $5,000 a year, which added to the mileage, made $12,200, but all it went, and a great deal more, in entertainment and presence at Washington. It was esteemed an honor to represent the territory for which so many sacrifices had been made, and such severe hardships endured, and money was not spared to bring it to public notice on every suitable occasion. The members of Congress usually manifest courtesy to delegates, as they are considered in a political sense orphans of the Republic, not having any vote nor in any other way being recognized as equals. They were not obliged at that time to serve on committees, nor expected to answer the roll call. It was an easy berth for an indolent man without ambition or avarice. The 38th Congress was considered a very able assembly. The Civil War had brought the most illustrious men of the nation to the surface, and their acquaintance leaves a pleasant memory. When I look over their photographs now, it is like shuffling an old pack of cards which have been played out. They have nearly all gone to the upper chamber, in this world or the next. Grove and Holman are the only ones in the house now. Daddy S. Stevens was a leader of the house, and treated me with the most distinguished consideration, even to the compliment of dining at my house, which was unprecedented in his long public career. The old sinner said the exception was made because my wife was a Baptist. I made but one speech, and that was on the subject of Indian affairs. An appropriation of $150,000 was obtained for the construction of irrigating canals to enable the Indians of Arizona to become self-supporting. This was the first instance in which irrigation was brought to the notice of the government. President Lincoln was always accessible amid his heavy cares. As my family lived in the neighborhood where the president had reared, my little girl made him a satchel of corn shucks from the field where he had hoed corn barefoot in briars, thinking he might appreciate a souvenir from his old home. One afternoon I escorted my daughter to the executive mansion to deliver my present. The president received it graciously and made many inquiries about the old neighbors. The 38th Congress passed the 14th Amendment to the Constitution, and as the delegates could not vote, they were requested to sign a paper giving their adhesion. I signed for Arizona, but it was a bitter pill. The End End of Section 4 End of Building a State in Apache Land by Charles Poston